<laughs> Good morning, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. My name is DJ. Uh, I'm 29 years old. I'm an unmarried pastor, and I'm here, to, I'm here today to, to teach you about sex and marriage. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, really quickly, if you're here for the first time, I promise that doesn't happen every week. This one's just a bit unique. Um, it's really good to see you guys. Uh, thank you for bearing with my entrance there. Um, to reiterate uh, kind of what Jono just said, this might not be the best sermon for kids or youth to be sitting on. Uh, this is really a sermon for adults. And so um, if, if you've got you know, a youth sitting next to you, maybe kindly encourage them to go join the rest of the kids today. It's going to be okay. Nothing too explicit. Don't worry. Um, in all seriousness, like Jono said, we're in a sermon series called A New Kind of People. Um, and this is a sermon series about becoming just that, a new kind of people. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. I want to give a quick shout out to Cozy, because uh, she taught two times in the past three weeks, and I thought absolutely led us straight to the heart of God. And I, I hope to do the same thing with you today, too. It's really fun to kind of do this thing as a team. And thank you, church, actually. Thanks all y'all out there, because it's weird. I know it's kind of strange to have a different teacher up almost every week. But I, I think what I'm seeing in our church is an appreciation that each person or each teacher is kind of gifted in a different way. And I just want to thank you guys for showing up each Sunday and leaning in with your hearts, ready to receive kind of whatever God has from you, from whatever person might be teaching. So thanks for that. Um, that kind of brings us to today. Like Jono uh, said or read, we are in a passage on the Sermon on the Mount that a lot of us either choose to skip over or have a lot of mixed ideas about. And so I think it's important that we start here. We're talking about sex, yes. Uh, we're talking about lust and divorce, and that's going to lead us to talk about sex. And I think because of that, I want to name a couple things. And I'm going to read off my notes here so I, I can name these things correctly. First of all, uh, sex is a triggering topic. Uh, sex is a triggering topic. It's probably the most contested space in our world today. Uh, this means that some of the stuff I say will probably elicit some emotions today. Um, some of you might feel angry by what I say. I hope not, but maybe. Some of you might feel sad or afraid or like scared of it for some reason, or you might feel excited. I just want to say all of the, the emotions you might experience today are totally acceptable, and there's a reason for those. It, it's because sex has become such a big topic of conversation in our world. And sadly, it isn't talked about in church very much. So we take a lot of emotions into it with us. Uh, I think this is because almost on a daily basis, you and I are being discipled about sex. I use that term um, very specifically, discipled. We are being trained up to think about sex in certain ways. And I think that's kind of happening all around us, uh, like all the time. On one hand, I think um, we're swimming in cultural waters uh, of the sexual revolution, and so when you and I step out this door, kind of the secular worlds that we live in are, are teaching us some certain messages about sex. Uh, in many ways today, sex has been detached from marriage, childbearing. Uh, sex has even been detached from romance in a lot of ways, uh, in any deep emotion. Um, and because of that, uh, we are, are, are sort of being taught this version of sex as like a moral progress. This is actually being taught as moral progress to detach sex from all of these things. And I think um, that's problematic, and I, I'll get to that a little bit later on. 
But these days, to challenge one's sexual ethic is to challenge their very personhood. Uh, a lot of the times, sex is made into kind of the, the core object of personal fulfillment. And I think that's problematic. And so when I say things today, it makes sense if things might, might hit you in certain ways, because you're taught that sex is so core to your life just by the, wa the waters we swim in. On the other hand, um, many of us come from evangelical upbringings or Christian upbringings, um, youth groups and such, that taught us that being Christian means staying quote unquote pure, uh, which for many of us was defined as maybe not watching porn, um, not masturbating, not having sex before marriage, etc. This vision of Christianity as essentially just a behavioral ethic around sex has been referred to as purity culture, maybe, or the true love waits movement. Uh, if some of you are familiar with that language. Uh, my personal favorite these days is crotch Christianity. <laughs> I, I, don't think, I don't think this has been super helpful either, though. You guys can take that one with you. I don't think it's been super helpful either, though. At, and and you got to pay attention to the fruit, right? Jesus always was talking about the fruit of different trees. What's the fruit of kind of this prevailing Christian sex ethic? In many ways, we've seen church abuse, right? Sexual abuse within church, most recently the Southern Baptist Convention. So we can't just put that on the Catholics. Like all of us seemingly, this isn't quite working for us. And for many of you out there, this version of the sex ethic has been made or made you to feel ashamed about your body, distrustful of your desires, and kind of confused about where to even start talking about sex, even within marriage. And so I would also say to you, if you're starting from that place today, just like I said to folks who maybe are starting from a different place, this is probably going to be a challenging message for you. And you'll hear some stuff that brings some stuff up for you, okay? I want to offer a quote as we start that was given to me by Delaney, one of our people on staff, Pastor Delaney. Um, and she offered this quote from, or she, she passed this quote from uh, Rachel Held Evans on, and I think it's really helpful. Rachel Held Evans is a writer, and she wrote this in her book, Searching for Sunday. She writes, imagine if every church became a place where everyone is safe, but no one is comfortable. Imagine if every church became a place where we told one another the truth. We might just create sanctuary, she writes. My goal today is for everyone in here to feel safe, but not necessarily to feel comfortable. It's okay to be uncomfortable here. You're safe. I want to get this off the table. Secondly, real quick, too. Uh, today is a sermon that's not geared towards giving you an answer on whether or not you're allowed to have sex before marriage. <laughs> Um, I know some of you might be carrying that expectation into here, and I, I actually hope that through this teaching today, you're going to see that there are better questions to be asking about sex than that. How far is too far is not necessarily a helpful question when we consider this topic in our discipleship to Jesus, and so just go ahead and set that expectation aside. That's not what I'm here to do either. And finally, uh, this is maybe the most important thing I'll say as I open up here. I want you guys to hear this loud and clear. There are people who have committed adultery in here today. There are other people who have left adulterous relationships. There are people here today who have been abused. There are probably abusers here too. There are people today here who are living in a sexual addiction or unwanted sexual behavior and then there are other people here, too, who have been dehumanized as a result of someone else's sexual desire. 
the mystery of our faith, and we say this all the time, is that no one in here is perfect. No one in here is perfect. Not in this area or, or very few other areas too. And yet the mystery of our faith is that every single person in this room is made in the image of God. Every single person here is made in the image of God. So whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever maybe has been done to you, you are treasured by God. His purpose is always for our good. His purpose is always to restore us into full life. And he is not interested in keeping a record of your wrongs. He's way more interested in your heart changing and moving increasingly in his direction. That's what he wants. I, I mean, I could stop right there. That's kind of what the sermon is, but that's what he wants. And, and that's life. We get it wrong sometimes, but God just wants our heart. Okay, we'll start there. And um, I'm gonna pray one more time for us as we open up, okay? Bow your heads with me. Lord, I give myself entirely over to you now. Give me your grace and give me courage to teach your word in a way that's honoring to you and constructive to us as we live out our discipleship to you. In Jesus' name, we all said together, amen. Okay, let's jump into the teaching. The way I want to frame this teaching today is kind of in a series of three parts, and so stick with me through it all, all right? The first part um, is actually going to go after the texts themselves that we just read. Uh, I want to go over these texts because I think probably sometimes they've been interpreted in certain ways just by a plain view of the text, and so I want to address that. And then I actually want to dive into the context with you, what was happening around the passage we just read, to maybe give you a more accurate and helpful interpretation of some of the stuff Jesus is saying here, okay? Secondly, uh, this is going to lead us into a talk around sex ethic in general. And I, I have reason to connect the two, and you'll see how that works a little bit later on. But the second part, I want to address kind of the Christian sex ethic, the prevailing Christian sex ethic and give you a couple models maybe for how we could rethink uh, how we go about sex in some ways. And then finally, I, I want to end by just giving a few pastoral words and responses on this topic. And so that's how it'll end. Part one, two, and three. You guys ready? All right. Turn to your neighbor and say you're ready. <laughs> Part one, lust and divorce. Let me open my Bible real quick. Matthew chapter five to remind you of what we just read. I'm a pastor, you'd think I'd find the text faster or even have it bookmarked. Okay, Matthew chapter five. I'm gonna read it out of my Bible. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Great, such an encouraging passage. Um, I, if you are sitting here today and, and maybe are reading this and you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you're thinking of the Bible as maybe a rule book and less as kind of a compass back to God's heart, this is maybe how you hear this passage. And for some of you, maybe this is even how this passage has been taught to you in certain settings. 
Um, guys, you might be thinking this after reading this passage. Um, I feel attracted to women and I, I see them. And when I do that, I'm immediately screwed. <laughs> I'm, uh, some of you guys are in here thinking I'm bound for hell because I can't help thinking the wrong way uh, when I look at a woman. So I'm just going to veer my eyes in the other direction. I'm going to put a rubber band around my wrist maybe and snap myself when I, I think the wrong thoughts. Um, and, and basically, I need to keep myself under control because if I watch porn or, you know, or perhaps uh, uh, have sex before marriage, I, I'm committing sin. I'm going to the wrong place. I'm going to hell. That's just plain reading, right? Totally understandable how maybe some people read this and, and take that away. If you're a gal, maybe here's what you get, either from this passage or from what the church has taught you in the past. Uh, you're thinking, I need to be careful about what I dress like, smell like, sound like, because I don't want to make a guy stumble and go to hell or become an amputee. Men's sexual desire is unruly and dangerous, so I need to be mindful of his desires, curb his desires, and ignore any of my own. Clearly, men are going to objectify me and push my limits, so I need to be the sexual gatekeeper in the relationship, just to name it. It's what some of you women maybe in here feel. Some descriptors of sexuality, if we go about reading the Bible in this way. Here's, here's the conclusions we start to come to. Sex is dangerous, scary, uncontrollable, dirty, incompatible with a godly life. This is what you might be led to conclude if you read the Bible in this way. So that's the plain interpretation. Here's, here's maybe a second interpretation I'm going to give you. Again, I'm not here necessarily to say this is the right or wrong way, but I think this might be a more helpful interpretation. And I'm going to go back to the text and give you some of the context, okay? Let's back up a second and, and remember what this series has been about the whole time. I think there's a slide for this. We've been talking a lot about how in the Sermon on the Mount, God is very interested in right relationships, right relationships, right relationships first with God, with others, with self, and actually with creation, right? The Sermon on the Mount is about bringing us into relationships, right relationships with all of these things. When people are living in right relationship to God, to others, to self and creation, the Hebrew word for this, the word we get in the Bible for this is shalom. Everybody say shalom. Shalom. Shalom doesn't just mean peace. I know some of you guys know that. Shalom is kind of this holistic well-being. God desires a holistic communal well-being for his creation. Modern psychologists, uh, some people have called this flourishing, but I think that's actually too selfish. It's bigger than just you and your own flourishing. It's like the flourishing of all of society, right? That's what God wants for us. And so what's happening in Jesus's day is that the Jewish leaders have lost sight of this, right? They don't remember, they've forgotten, they've lost sight of God's idea of shalom. And what's happening is they're going back to their holy scripture and they're starting to interpret it in a really, really tit for tat, word for word, super technical way. And so they're reading the scripture and they're asking that the, the rabbis, kind of the Jewish leaders of the time are reading the scripture and they're interpreting it for the Jewish people, who by the way, are the people Jesus is talking to. And the rabbis are going at these passages with this question in mind. Basically, what can I get away with? 
What can I get away with? Who's ever been guilty of maybe reading the Bible that way? I don't know, maybe me. So Jewish rabbis are going back and they're thinking, well, technically, technically, the law doesn't say that, you know, well, I'm not allowed to commit adultery, but the law doesn't say that I can't, you know, imagine, imagine what it would be like to take her to bed. And this is how the Jews, this is how God's people are reading their holy scripture. Obviously, there's some problems with that. Jesus calls this out because he knows that behavior modification and commiserating over what is and what is not allowed will never get us to the abundant life that he invites us into. We've said it over and over again that Jesus wants our heart. God wants our heart. That's goal number one for him. That's where everything starts. And he wants our hearts to become like his, compassionate and kind and just. So with this in mind, he's calling out the scribes and Pharisees who are teaching the people this law, he's, and he's calling out the Jewish people because they're going at this thing backwards. They're asking, what can I get away with? And he's like, I want your heart. If this interpretation is more helpful, if this interpretation is more accurate, here's what this means. I'm going to go back to the guys and the gals thing. By the way, quick quick qualifier there, quick, quick preface, preface. I realized today that I'm speaking with heterosexual and um, with cisgender assumptions. And I, I know that there's actually probably some people in here um, that, that that's that kind of model or, or that paradigm isn't really what you subscribe to. And that's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother day. But I, I want you to know you're welcome here. You're safe here. And I, I want you to know that there's probably a word for you here too, because this is about relationships, not what kind of relationship you should be in. So just keep listening, okay? Sorry, forgot to mention that. Um, guys, to go back, if this is actually the, the more accurate interpretation, here's what this means. It means that you're not a monster. It means that you're not inherently corrupt. It means you have the ability to look and be in proximity to women without going to hell. <laughs> it seems so silly to say that, but it needs to be said. You were created in goodness for good God-honoring sex, just like women. God created women just like men to bear his God wants us to see beauty in each other. And I think it's safe to say that women want to see beauty in us too. I also need to say though, that acknowledgement and appreciation, seeing beauty is much, much different than objectification and visualization outside of a relationship, especially. Jesus is getting at the nature of the relationship, okay? He's getting at the nature of the interaction, the way we do this. So I, I'm actually going to, at this time, invite Isaiah up here with me because he's going to model something for me. Everybody clap for Isaiah. Thank you. Can you just start to unravel that for me real quick? I'm going to break this down a little further. I, I think there's a big difference I'm getting at between lust and beauty, if you're not catching it yet, okay? I'm going to try to model both of these things. The difference between lust and beauty is what I would say is, is the difference between and giving, okay? When we lust in a relationship, ourselves, we're only thinking selfishly and we take and take and take in a relationship, okay? So let me break down how this happens with my friend Isaiah here. We're gonna split this rope together, okay? 
in a relationship with someone, this is kind of how it's supposed to be. We're, we're meant to hold equal weight of the rope, if you will, of the connection, right? However, uh, what lust does and why Jesus cares so much about this is it takes. And when you take in a relationship, you might be, I don't, this is why porn is destructive. This is why um, marriage or sex outside of marriage can be destructive. This is why non-committal sex is destructive because you take and you take and you take. And what taking does in relationships is eventually it kills the relationship entirely. Not just with the other, but it kills the relationship with the whole community. If you keep on taking and taking and taking, it's gonna, it's gonna kill your relationships with the whole community. And it's gonna kill your relationship even with God if you're not careful. You can take and you can take and you can take in relationships and you will find yourself in a hell of your own creation because you will have cut off everything and everyone around you. I, that's why I don't think it's too far for Jesus to say, you're going to be in hell if you stay stuck in lust. We take, and that's the wrong way to live in relationship. Now, let's go back to beauty. If I live with someone and I see them with beauty, when I see beauty in someone, my actual, I would actually say this is the natural human inclination that God has given all of us to see beauty in another person and to see beauty in other things. And when we see beauty, we honor it. We acknowledge it. Hi, Isaiah. And we, <laughs> and we long, what happens? We long to give to it right? When we see something beautiful, I just want to give, and I want to give, and I want to give. And in time, I'll receive too, because that's just what happens in really good, beautiful relationships in our world. Think about how ecosystems work. Think about how our bodies work. We live in relationships with everything around us, and they're relationships of giving and receiving, and that maintains the strong connection and intimacy that God desires between us and everything else. Isaiah, thank you so much. Give him a hand. By the way, that's why Paul writes in Ephesians for husbands to love your wives. How? Like Christ loves his church. Because how did Christ love his church? How does Christ love us? By giving everything, even his own life. Our relationships, our marriages are meant to embody that giving kind of love that Jesus has for his church, okay? So ask yourself that question in every relationship. If we could put that slide up, guys. Am I taking right now or am I giving? When you're in a moment and you're wondering, am I lusting right now or am I appreciating beauty? Ask yourself this question. Have the mindfulness to peel back for a second and ask yourself this question. Am I taking or am I giving? And apply that, by the way, to your relationship with God, creation, self. It's kind of beautiful. Actually, this, this works for all of those relationships. It's a big question. Am I taking or am I giving? So that was for guys. Women, I, I just want to have this word real quick. Um, if this interpretation is actually the more accurate and helpful one that we just read, you are not responsible for the sexual sin of men around you. Hear that loud and clear. So you feel free to love your body. Uh, you won't hear this in every church, but wear yoga pants. Go for it. Dance. Because you're not the gatekeeper. 
and you are a sexual being too. Jesus gave this word not solely to men. That was kind of just the, the, the place and time he was speaking into. This is a word for women too. God wants you to experience pleasure and connection just like men in equal proportion, actually. So don't settle for denying your own desires. Name and assert the things that make you feel good, not just in sex and everything. You're an independent decision maker who has an equal say, and you can go on and be a queen, okay? Amen. I'm sure said amen. I could say much more about these things. I, I want to say this so real quick. If you are, are a product of or have been greatly impacted by kind of the messed up Christian purity culture vibe, I don't think that's unhealthy. I think there's a better way. And if you want to unpack this more, we have a resource up here that I'm recommending called The Great Sex Rescue. This is for unmarried and married people alike, okay? Um, Jess McCormick is out here somewhere, and, and she's a great teacher on this subject and is actually leading a book club on this subject right now. And that's, I think, going to repeat next spring or something like that. So look out for that. In the meantime, you can just read it for yourself. Highly recommend. Okay, let's go back to our passage on divorce. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. I think it's also on the screen behind me. Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, not my favorite passage in the Bible, but hopefully we like it a little more after this. Version one, right? To go back, if we were to read this plainly, with the Bible as a rule book and not as a compass for leading us back to the heart of God. Here's what we might be assuming from reading this passage, just plainly. Divorce, except on the grounds of unfaithfulness, is equivalent to adultery, and adultery, for those who missed it, is a sin punishable by hell. Therefore, divorce is punishable by hell. And if you are someone who's experienced divorce, you're only adding sin to sin by getting remarried because you're committing adultery. Some of you have heard that divorce is inherently wrong, and that's been taught from this passage. Some of you have been taught that divorce um, is, is a ticket to hell, basically, and you're living under an avalanche of shame because you've heard that message somewhere. And I'm sorry if that's you. Again, I'm doing this today because I think there's more healthy and helpful ways of reading this passage than that. Again, you're safe here. Okay. Um, what I see going on here in this passage is, is something very different. Um, commentators and historians tell us that right around the time of Jesus's ministry, rabbis were doing the same thing with this law as, as the one I just talked about, the one on adultery. So they were going back to their scriptures, and, and the rabbis were looking at this passage on divorce in the Torah. And again, they were saying, well, technically it doesn't say. And they were asking, what can I get away with? As a result, the, the rabbis who were actually tasked with upholding God's original vision for marriage were treating marriage with way too much whimsy, way too lightly, and they were contorting or distorting God's original vision for marriage. And they were just passing out divorce certificates for any and every reason a man would bring to divorce his wife. Because that's how it worked back then. Men had the power. Men would come to the rabbis and say, I want to divorce my wife for such and such a reason. And the rabbis, by this point in history, they were just passing out the certificates. 
I thought of it kind of like the REI uh, return policy. <laughs> no, no disrespect to you REI workers out there. Um, but hey, Peter. <laughs> but but you, you walk up to the counter at REI, you've just bought something brand new, and you could literally say, this stitch is, is it's just rubbing me like right here, and it's so annoying. And they're, they're just going to hand you your money right back, right? It's the beautiful part about REI. But that's for REI. That is not for divorce and marriage, right? But this is basically what was happening. One historian who was living at the time, Josephus, at the same time as Jesus, tells us of a man who actually asked for a divorce and got a divorce because he got home from work one day and she had cooked him the wrong meal for dinner. And so the next day he went to the rabbi and asked to divorce her. That is not a high vision of marriage. And that is not a solemn enough vision of divorce, right? So any and every reason, I think um, a helpful interpretation of this passage uh, is actually Eugene Peterson's, and this is going to help us get to the heart of the matter, okay? Read this with me. Remember, not literally out loud, but read this on the screen behind me. Remember the scripture that says, whoever divorces his wife, let him do it legally, giving her divorce papers and legal rights. Too many of you are using that as a cover for selfishness and whim, what we just talked about, right? Pretending to be righteous just because you are legal. Please, no more pretending. If you divorce your wife, you're responsible for making her an adulteress. He's calling out the men. And if you marry such a divorced adulteress, you're automatically an adulterer yourself. And then he says this, you can't use legal cover to mask a moral failure. That's what was happening. You can't use legal cover to mask a moral failure. So maybe, maybe if this is a better interpretation of this passage, consider, considering the context, maybe this is less of a moral judgment on people who have experienced divorce, on divorcees, and it's more of a social justice statement by Jesus. Considering that men had all the power in this society, and that women, a lot of the time, their only power and agency came from marrying a man, maybe this is actually is speaking more to Jesus protecting women and protecting their agency and protecting their power. Because he knows that, 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 that they are made in the image of God, just like men are, and that's what they deserve. And two, like I just said, maybe a more accurate interpretation is Jesus is protecting God's original intent for marriage against the whimsy of divorce that was happening at the time. Divorce does not, in other words, inherently make you a sinner. I don't think. This is not a, a, a passage condemning divorcees. It's a corrective teaching. And it's, it's actually a teaching that's teaching us about God's original intent for marriage. Married folks, if you're tuning out, because a lot of this has been to, to geared towards singles and, and unmarried people. Married folks, listen to this real quick. If you're married... What Jesus is saying right here is your marriage is actually meant to embody God's covenant love for his people. If you haven't thought about your marriage in that way, I want to encourage you to think about it that way today. Your marriage is actually meant to embody for the rest of the world what God's, I love the, the Jesus storybook Bible. In the Jesus storybook Bible, it says God's never giving up love. If you're married, that's your call to embody God's never giving up love. And that call means you need to do everything you can to embody that, not just for your sake, 
but for the sake of all of us in this community, because we want to look in and we want to say, yes, that's what God's love is like for his people. I see it now. They've been through hard stuff, and I know marriage isn't easy, and I know that they've had some struggles along the way, but those two have stuck it out together, and I can't believe that's how God feels about me too and about his people too. That's what your marriage is about. In addition to the romance, in addition to the intimacy and connection, your marriage is actually meant to give a living picture to like the rest of us in this community and to the rest of the world. It's beautiful. Lastly, I'll say this. There's so many kind of qualifiers and people I want to speak to here, but hear this. I know that there are people in this room who you really wanted that to be the case. You really wanted your marriage to work and it didn't. And, and I would echo what Pastor Cozy wrote in an email this past week. I thought she wrote this beautifully. If you didn't see it, you can go back and look at it. But here is a word that Cozy gave us after last week's sermon. She said this, if you're in an abusive relationship, marriage or otherwise, you can have a heart eager for reconciliation and still come to the conclusion that the relationship needs to end or change significantly. You can still come to that conclusion. If you're in this situation, she said, surround yourself with wise, trustworthy people in your life. Consider counseling and ask for support. In her email, she gave a link for ways to do that. And on your card today, on your program today, um, you can check a box if that's you and you want some help, okay? So just consider that. Here's my final word on these interpretations of these passages. Married, divorced, single, You belong here. I'll go back to what I said originally. You are treasured by God. You're made in the image of God and you are part of this God family, wherever you come from. No one's perfect. Okay, that was part one. (laughs) You guys still with me? (laughs) Crazy. I promise part two is a little shorter. I'm actually, I'm excited about this part two. So part two, um, it's, I'm titling a re-envisioning of the Christian sex ethic. Um, If you look closely how the Jewish teachers and leaders of Jesus's day were treating adultery and divorce, um, it's not hard to see the commonality between the two, right? To use Peterson's one more time, they were using legal cover to mask their moral failure. They were looking for a boundary. They were trying to draw a line between what makes them a good Jew and makes them a bad Jew. And they weren't concerned at all about God actually changing their hearts. That was the commonality. That's a common line between those two in case you missed it. I want to submit to you today that in large part, the Christian sex ethic of the past three decades or so, what I referred to previously as crotch Christianity um, or purity culture, has set us up to think of our sexuality sometimes in ways that resemble the problematic elements of of the Jewish leaders and, and the ways that the Jewish leaders were looking at lust and divorce. I want to argue that our sex ethic sometimes is trying to draw a boundary line. And I I just wonder if that's not the most helpful thing or or the most helpful way to think about sex as Christians. Um, This this was a little bit of a risk, but I decided to make my own models for this. Are you guys okay um, looking at my models? (laughs) I'm kind of a nerd. Um, I also brought a laser pointer to, to, to explain these models to you. We're throwing it back. Uh, this is this model. The first one is in part inspired by a uh, a podcast uh, a podcast called The Holy Post. It's by Phil Vischer, who actually created Veggie Tales back in the day. If you're familiar with that, um, he has a podcast episode 
called um, is evangelicalism about Jesus or sexual ethics. <laughs> and and um, so this is in part inspired by that and some of the stuff I named a little earlier. So let's take a look at this real quick. I'm gonna try to explain these. Can everybody see it more or less? I know that the small font is hard to see. You'll see this in an email this week too. I worry sometimes that how we talk about sex within Christianity, if you, again, if you've come from a, an evangelical context in which you've been told this is right or wrong, I worry this is kind of how we've been discipled. This is maybe what's happened. We, in this well-technically model, I got to turn this on real quick. Oh, no. Of course I lost the batteries right before. Okay, I'm going to do this my best without my laser pointer. Um, I know, it's sad. In the well-technically model, uh, you're going to see a couple things happening. I, I just want to point out a few things. There's so much happening here. Uh, you're going to see that there's a realm outside of a circle called the non-Christian realm, and you're going to see inside of the circle called the Christian realm. And I put that in quotes for a reason, right? Um, a lot of us, how we've been taught about what it means to be a Christian was, was literally it came down to don't have sex before marriage, don't watch porn, don't masturbate, um, dress modestly. And, and sadly, that was the message a lot of us took from our youth groups. Hopefully you took some other message away about Jesus and the Bible and the Trinity and such, but you can't guarantee that, that this is just how a lot of us were brought up, myself included. And in order to pass from the realm of non-Christian to Christian, we had to pass through the gates of sex ethic, I'm calling them. So you pass through and what you get on the other side is you're now kind of, you can call yourself a Christian because you're in the Christian circle. And then once you're in the Christian circle, and as long as you're abiding by that sex ethic, you kind of get to do what you want with the rest of these things, all right? So, so if you can't read them, here's some stuff I put in this circle. Now, now that I'm a Christian, um, I can post on social media however I want. Now that I'm a Christian, I can love my neighbor sometimes. Um, now that I'm a Christian, I can do relationships how I want. I can spend my money how I want. I can run my business how I want. Um, we get in this circle sometimes and I worry that because we've gotten through the gates of sex ethic, uh, how Christianity has been taught to a lot of us is we get to do whatever we want after that, basically. Next slide, please. Here's, here's kind of the big problem I see with this. Number one, two things I want you to notice. Number one, I think this model, how we've been taught about sex, some of us within Christianity, is that it separates our sexuality from our spirituality. It bifurcates the two. And I'm, I think the problematic element is our sexuality lives outside of the realm of being Christian. And so then once you become a Christian, it feels like you can't talk about sex anymore and you can't even mention it, Right because that's been left outside of the realm in the non-Christian world. So maybe you have some non-Christian friends that you like to talk about sex with, but you dare not talk about sex with your Christian friends. It's real, right? Our measurables for this, right? If we're living a good Christian life, here's what our measurables become according to this model. Again, I'm not having premarital sex. I'm, I'm abiding by the rules. I'm not watching porn. I'm, I'm not masturbating and I'm dressing modestly, right? As long as I'm doing those things, in other words, I'm being a good Christian, like I'm living how Jesus wants me to, according to this model. Um, go back to my notes real quick. So in addition to the, the, the problem I named, the bifurcation of spirituality and sexuality, I think um, the biggest problems I see with this is, number one, it's left most unmarried Christians wondering what they can get away with without sinning. 
goes straight back to the passages, right? Left a lot of us wondering what we can get away with. It's left married Christians with the nearly impossible task of once they get married, flipping the sexy switch overnight, unsure of how to even show up, how to communicate or how to understand their partner, all without knowing that they, that, all without knowing what they are allowed to ask or what they should just know already. It's paralyzed us. Ultimately, this is the biggest problem, I think. It's kept sex from being talked about within our God family. And I think that's a problem because this is an area of discipleship we need to talk about. Um, in her book, Redeeming Sex, uh, we're going to flip to a new model in a second here, but before I do that, in her book, Redeeming Sex, Deborah Hirsch uh, gives some of the most helpful definitions of sexuality and spirituality I've ever heard, okay? I want you to pay attention to these and notice what you notice about them. Look at these definitions behind me as I read them. Sexuality, she says, is the deep desire and longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to understand and connect with the other or that which is other than ourselves. Spirituality, she says, is the vast longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with and understand our world. It is the internal compulsion to connect with the eternal other that is God. What do you notice? I think her definitions are really helpful in this conversation because they debunk the prevalent myth over the last few decades of evangelicalism that sexuality and spirituality live in separate spheres. In fact, what Hirsch would suggest is they're, they're actually super related and they're maybe even accomplishing the same thing or trying to accomplish the same thing, again, when they're viewed in a godly way. Okay, so with this in mind, I have a different ethical model that, again, I made, and, and you're welcome to interact with. It's a first draft, okay, so don't be too harsh on me, but the helpful thing about models is they give us at least something to start talking about, okay? This is a model um, that I made kind of based on these definitions, and I think it's a more comprehensive and helpful model than the one I just showed. This is called the love ethic of Jesus model. Take a look real quick. Again, sorry about the small font. In the love ethic of Jesus model, one of the first things you'll notice is I, I've chosen not to make a realm of non-Christian and Christian. Now, there's a lot to be said about that, right? I, think, I, do, I do think it's important when you decide to follow Jesus that you make a commitment to follow Jesus. But what I'm trying to say here is, is actually it starts somewhere, but then you don't just like move into being Christian and you're done, okay? What I'm trying to say here, look at the bottom there is number one, after an encounter with God's love and a commitment to follow Jesus, I'm no longer just in a circle of being Christian. I'm actually in the process of becoming Christ-like. That's what you'll see on the bottom there, okay? And rather than filtering my ethic or filtering how I'm supposed to live according to whether or not I'm abiding by the sex ethic I've been taught in youth group, my filter becomes, am I loving God and am I loving my neighbor? Think about how you filter your life. What if every day of your life and what if every decision you made, you were asking before you made it, am I loving God and am I loving my neighbor? How might your, like, how might your sex look different? How might your love look different? How much your, li like your life look different, right? When we filter in this way, I think what we get 
is rather than doing whatever I want, like I was talking about in that Christian circle, instead what we get is a neatly ordered, uh, neatly ordered list of our devotions and our priorities. And what we get is love in my devotion to God, love in my relationships, if you can't read it out there, love in my words slash my social media presence, love in my work in business, love with my finances, and absolutely love in my sex life. But I think this is a more helpful model for how we think of what it means to commit to Jesus and to becoming more like Jesus. It's a process. And again, no one is perfect on the way, but I think this captures it a bit better, what we're after than the model I just showed you before this. Okay, and here's the last thing. Next slide, please. Here's how this frames sexuality and spirituality. Something really interesting is happening here, right? When we encounter God's love and when we're moving towards love in all things through the filter of loving God and loving my neighbor, what I'm actually trying to say is I think sexuality and spirituality propel us outwards beyond ourselves to stop living selfishly and to start living for other people. Healthy sex, like I said, is about giving to somebody. Healthy sexuality is about getting beyond myself and being beyond my own concerns and actually being about the concerns of another person, a loved other, a committed other, okay? Spirituality in many ways is the same thing. It drives us beyond ourselves to love the world in the way that Jesus loved the world. So actually they're, they're like a life force, sexuality and spirituality. They're like an energy that I use to go out beyond myself and to love and serve people like Jesus would. And the measurables, remember I had the measurables the last one, the measurables of this lifestyle, because some people like to judge how they're doing on stuff, the measurables of this lifestyle, I think are the fruits of the spirit. We go back to the fruits of the spirit and we ask, am I embodying more love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control? Am I seeing that happen in my heart and in my life around me? And yes, am I seeing finally intimacy? That's what healthy sexuality was meant to get us at, intimacy with the other, with God, with creation, and with self. Again, imperfect. Offer me some feedback if you want. I like talking about this stuff, okay? Okay, thank you for the models. I want to finish up today. Um, again, those will be kind of on an email, so you can, if you miss some of that, you can interact with your, your small group about that at home. Um, to finish up part three, kind of the so what, or what does this mean for me, you, us here right now? For unmarried people slash couples out there, I want to speak to you first. We're bringing it home here, okay? Some of y'all maybe are kind of sitting there like, cool, man, but I'm just, uh, just going to keep doing my thing. Or um, you're not really convinced that everything I've just talked about is important. Or maybe you kind of feel like this has nothing to do with you. And that's okay. Um, I, I would say if you haven't given your life over to Jesus, some of this stuff just plain and simple isn't really going to make sense. Um, because... Life with Christ is about giving our whole life over to him. And, and maybe that's not you today. Hopefully you've heard some things about sex though and, and kind of a grander vision for sex that will help you think critically about this. I want you to ask yourself, is it possible that Jesus knows better than me and has my best in mind? Is it possible? Does he know better than you and does he have your best in mind? 
And then to go to God and say, is there anything in me, God, that you might wanna change today? Okay, so for, for those of you who feel a little checked out right now, um, or who maybe don't feel like this has anything to do with you, ask that question. Other of you young people, I've named this already, you feel like you've been given these rules and you're gonna do your best to stick to them in life. Um, and maybe you're dating and you're like trying to play by the rules, you know? Um, but sometimes they just feel awkward and you wanna talk to someone about it, um, but you've got no idea where to start because it feels like you might be the only one. And so you're kind of living under this like quiet blanket of shame. Like I can't talk to anyone about this because I'm the only one. Um, I said it at the beginning, <laughs> if you missed it, guarantee you no one in this room is perfect in this area or any other. And so I think what that invites us into, if we are indeed on a journey of becoming more Christ-like and being offered grace along the way, I think what this is inviting us into is actually starting a conversation with people who are older than us about some of the stuff we're navigating as we date and have relationships with each other or just exist as a young single adult. I know I have my own questions. If that's you, I would encourage you, please don't stay in the dark. You have a responsibility here to bring up the conversation and to open up about it and just to talk to someone about it. So that's you, you're actually on your form gonna find, and we might need to pass some pens around here and share, but on your program that you got when you walked in today, if you just wanna talk to an older person about sex and like no judgment, no agenda, no nothing, you just wanna hear how an older Christian navigated some of this stuff in their younger life, um, you're gonna find a box to check and we're gonna try to link you up with someone, not for like months long of a mentorship, but like literally just for like coffee or, or a phone call or something, okay? Um, again, no agenda, no obligation even, um, but if that's you, I, I just think that'd be really helpful because we're starting conversation here. If you're older, um, maybe married, uh, first of all, I wanna encourage you to consider having a conversation about how each of you feels about your sex life. Maybe when you get home today, I don't know. What has been um, your experience with marriage? Why did Jesus care so much about marriage? Talk about that together. And then ask, what's the big deal about divorce? And what are my feelings about divorce? Are there areas of our life where we feel conflicted or have questions about this stuff? And I would say be curious and eager to discover God's best for you and to discover the best sex uh, that God has for you, the best sex you've ever had in life. That would, that's what I would say to married couples. Secondly, take some young folks. This goes back to what I just said. Secondly, if you're an older person or a married person in this room, please consider taking some young folks out for coffee and just talking to them openly about maybe where you feel like you could have done better, <laughs> where you received grace, how you navigated some of this stuff, and how you stayed following Jesus in the process. Because young people, I can tell you as a young person, we're dying to know how you did this and what's God's best for us. And old, older people, you, <laughs> you have a responsibility here too, okay? I, I cannot emphasize that enough. Everybody has a part to play here. So if that's you, you're gonna find another box um, to check on your form that just says, yeah, I'm open, sure, let's do it. I'll get through the awkward and I'll talk to a younger person about sex, okay? Um, another, just as I was praying through this sermon this week and getting ready, this was another big group that God put on my heart. Uh, I know, I know for sure there's some of us in here today that feel stuck in unwanted sexual behavior. 
you feel stuck. I want you to first know you're not alone. So many um, I know have gone through this or are going through this currently. Um, And here at Ocean Hills, we like to say all the time, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. God wants you to, like, I, you know, it's that process. God wants you to become more like Jesus. So come as you are. You're welcome here, and we love you, but don't stay as you are. This is a place to invite God into your change, too. A unique part of the Christian tradition is that we actually have a mechanism or a way to start bringing about God's healing in our lives and to start bringing about God's change in our lives. And I'm about to say a really ugly word, but we call that confession. It's a Nicky word, but it's good. It's good. Confession. Actually, our Catholic brothers and sisters call confession the sacrament of reconciliation. Again, because you confess, but it's on your way to being reconciled to God. So hear this. Some of us here need to simply name that we've been living in a way that isn't in line with loving God and loving our community. We're taking. And we need to tell someone that we're committing to turn around today to live in a new way. And so if that's you, again, we love you. And because of that, we want you to consider maybe coming to the front or the back and meeting with some of our prayer team members. There's going to be some folks in the back today too. And letting them walk you through that process of reconciliation with God. That could be really important for some of you today. And then additionally, you'll find another box on that form offering direction for deeper healing in this area. And I would say we're so blessed to have experts in this God family on healing from unwanted sexual desire. And they cannot wait to help you heal from this. You're not stuck. And we have people in our church who can help you with that. So go ahead and check that box, fold it up, put it in the boxes as you leave today. For all of you guys, if you check a box, go ahead and put it in the wooden boxes, the same boxes we use for giving. Go ahead and throw those in there and we'll follow up with you, okay? But consider that. Consider maybe your act today is actually just to name it, to confess it. Lastly, there's so many areas I I could speak to, but this is where I'm going to end today. Lastly, all the studies, um, all the books, all the things, they tell us at the heart of sex is intimacy. Intimacy. God has hardwired us for intimacy. And because of that, I know that a lot of people, what you're feeling in the room today is loneliness. When we talk about this issue, you're feeling loneliness. I think um, that's because, some of you, by the way, are in marriages and you feel deeply lonely. I think that's because that's where we, it's pointing to like where we came from. Let me explain what I mean by that. Our hearts want intimacy, I think, because in Genesis, we read that at the beginning of humanity, where you and I started God and Adam and Eve and all creation lived together in perfect intimacy in a garden. They were naked and unashamed. It says there was no hiding. There was no proving. There was no performing. There was no earning. They were perfectly held in the arms of each other and of God. I think what we're experiencing in our loneliness is actually a memory in that way. It's nostalgia to go back to that place where we are perfectly held by another person and by God. That's what our loneliness points us back to. Maya Angelou writes this, the ache for home lives in all of us. The ache for home. Does anybody feel that? 
the place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. It's that. That's the kind of embrace that our hearts long for. I think our hearts are crying out for that intimacy too. In addition to being a memory, our, our hearts cry out for intimacy too because it's actually where we're going. It's where we came from and it's where we're going. And this is where we're going to bring it to a close. I'm going to invite the band up actually if you guys are around. I think our hearts cry out for... Am I good there? Yeah, okay, cool. Thank you. That was scary. Halloween's coming. <laughs> I think our hearts cry out too for intimacy because it's where we're going. And in the book of Revelation, which is at the back of the Bible, it's this vision of, of how things are going to be at the end of time. It's this picture of this fancy word we call the eschaton, right? The very end of things. How are things going to end up? Is there a purpose to the universe? The Bible says yes, and it's in Revelation. And this, and this is, is what we read. In Revelation, we find a garden, another garden, and it's got a tree in it, and a river runs through it. And Revelation says that in this garden, a savior and a friend, a perfect friend awaits us. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus in this garden, the book says, he's ready to embrace us and to be delighted in us just because of who we are. We're going straight back to where we came from. There will be no hiding, be no reason to live in shame. There will be no proving, there will be no performing, there will be no questions asked. Jesus will take us back. And there, there in the arms of Jesus, you and I will finally feel that ache. That ache for home will finally feel that ache subside. Knowing ourselves to be loved and to be known in perfect intimacy with our creator and with our God. I envision this um, as just a big hug. I preached a few months ago and was talking about how we were meant to live in God's embrace. And I think that's where we're going. And I wanted to, I, gosh, I, I prayed so much about this. But God put it on my heart. He said this as I was thinking through this. He said, DJ, I think some people are going to be healed today not through words, but through touch. Some people are going to be healed today not through words, but through touch. Because touch can say things that words never will. And I'm going to be really careful about how I ask you to respond to this. Um, but I actually want to rehearse what it's going to be like to come home to our Savior and to our friend Jesus on that day when we finally get to meet him. I want to rehearse what it's like to live in perfect intimacy and to live in perfect connection with somebody. Uh, and, and so if you're sitting next to someone you trust and someone you love, I'm going to ask you to do something kind of crazy. Um, during this worship set, I'm going to have you stand up and I'm going to ask you to give them a hug. And, and I'm not talking about like a Christian side hug. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm talking about like, like a full embrace. And if you want to get extra crazy, hold it. Again, if it's someone you trust, okay? But, but try, try this. Hold it. Hold it. Because one day we're going to be held. We're not just going to be hugged. 
And if, if that's not you, if you're not sitting next to someone you trust, uh, the prayer team has been practicing hugging all week long, right? Right? And, and they're safe, and gosh, God has anointed them. And so I would invite you to come and just be held by someone on the prayer team. Again, they'll be in the back and the front, okay? I just named a lot of things, and I just named a lot of groups of people in here, and I, I just really feel like God wants to do some healing in this space today. And there's so much more to talk about, but let's start with that first thing, with being like with encountering the love of Jesus today, okay? We're gonna experience that through hugs, we're gonna experience that through prayer. Come forward if that's you, and be embraced by the love of God. Let me pray for us as we go into worship here. God, we still our hearts before you. All you've ever wanted, Jesus, all, all you've ever wanted, this whole thing, it's just about our hearts. It's about our hearts turning towards you and us coming to somehow know just how crazy loved we are. And then in turn to love the world back with that crazy love. And so we give this time to you, Jesus, to do what only you can do. And Holy Spirit, we call upon you right now to heal things. I, I believe you're going to heal like generations of things today, God. And sometimes that healing is long and slow. But Holy Spirit, we also know that sometimes an encounter with you accelerates our healing. And I just want to be bold today, Jesus. I want to ask that you would accelerate some healing for people today. Bring them back to fully restored relationship with you. I believe your Holy Spirit wants to do that today. So come, Holy Spirit. Touch our hearts. We love you. We love you. We want to be more like you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.